I'm assuming that you listen to at least some public radio because here you are. But you might have found that where and when and why you listen to particular things has changed in recent years. And I'm very interested today in the role that public radio especially plays for you, vested interests notwithstanding, because it's such an important element in so many people's lives for entertainment and companionship and news and emergency information and conversation. So what do you think is essential to public radio and what needs to change? The kinds of stories you're hearing, who is telling them, where they're available to you, or the way that we tell those stories? As RN celebrates its 100th anniversary, how does it stay relevant to you over the next 10 or 20 or even 100 years? With us today are three guests who have put a ton of thought into this and have been walking the talk as well uh, in different fields for some years now. Eric Newsom is a podcast strategist and the author of Make Noise, a creator's guide to podcasting and great audio storytelling. Eric, welcome. Thank you for having me. Great to have you on the program. You can find Eric's work at ericnewsom.com. Fran Kelly is the co-host of the Party Room podcast and the recently announced host of Saturday Extra too, returning to the airwaves after a well-deserved break from her long-term role as a voice of RN Breakfast. Fran, great to chat to you again. Great to be back with you, Hillary. Still getting texts flooding in right now saying, excellent, Fran's coming back. Thank you, Aaron. Great. <laughs> Good. Great to be back. And Monica Attard won five Walkley Awards for her work with the ABC and she is now the co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at UTS. Extremely useful perspective for us today. Monica, great to have you here. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. And I'm going to start by asking you all to tell us why you got into this field in the first place and what you saw as its purpose. Monica, let's start with you. What what drew you to public radio? Oh, uh, just a, a love of the medium. I mean, I, I think it's one of the most intimate and... Um, and beguiling of, of, of all media, frankly. It's, uh, it's, it's a medium where you feel as though you are communicating directly one-on-one with, with people and that you're, you know, you're in their home, you're in their car, um, you're in their ear. It's, it's a very, very intimate medium. And I, I, found, I never found that it was limiting because of the lack of pictures. You, you know, you had words, you had sound to describe a situation and it just felt to me as though it was such a direct medium that um, that it was the most impactful. Indeed. And Fran Kelly, what are your thoughts on that? Because you've been in radio for a very long time. Well, I have and I started in community radio and I got into community radio because a friend of mine was involved with it. And then I got there and I just realised I really liked talking to people and I really liked talking to people about ideas and I couldn't believe that these medium existed and that and then I dared to dream that I could have a role in it and then I really got to understand journalism I suppose so I came at it not from journalism initially but from the notion of just having talking to people and um and then you know got engaged with journalism and it was my passion I mean the moment I the moment I got my first journalistic job I just knew that I was home and that was quite late for me. You know, I didn't start, I didn't go the normal path of going through a uni degree and then trying to get a job. I had had a career already, so I was 30 before I got my first proper current affairs job and um, it was, to me, just made sense of all the bits of me and all my values and it was, you know, um, I, I, I this sounds cliched or corny, I'm sure, but it was blissful going to work every day. I just, you know, I just knew I'd found 
where I was meant to be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very no, lucky. I think a lot of us get a kind of swelling in the heart at the the walking through the front doors of the ABC, yeah, and feeling very still. lucky. Yeah, after all these years. Um, uh, Eric Newsom, what about you? What drew you to this kind of area where you get to talk to people and hear from people in such a direct way? Well, uh, I, I would say my answer is I, I became a fan of radio when I was very young, like like just in, in, in primary school and loved listening to the radio, thought it was just amazing that like you'd create communities and kind of satisfy your desire to hear new things, new music. And, and then as I got older, uh, my parents were listeners to public radio and I was very much of a backseat kid who got exposed to it and it became kind of like an essential part of our family conversation. So it was like, it was just... And it just amazed me that the tools of radio could be used to do more than just to entertain. Though a lot of public radio is entertaining, but it also to convey ideas and to, to kind of make the world smaller um, and less complicated. And and yet at the same time, satisfy the hunger we have to, to understand the why and how of the world that public radio is so good at uh, doing almost everywhere there is public radio. And uh, I've always just found that just really, really attractive um, way to use the tools of radio. I love that you say it makes the world smaller because I love that too, that sense that you're having a connection with a person, but it also made it bigger yeah. for me because I grew up in a very small town and suddenly I could get these ideas directly to my brainstem that I had never encountered before. Very exciting times. We're speaking with Eric Newsom, who's a podcast strategist and uh, has written a very influential book called Make Noise, A Creator's Guide to Podcasting and Great Audio Storytelling. Fran Kelly, who most of you will, of course, remember from uh, our crosses uh, between Life Matters and Breakfast for quite a long time and many years before that on RN Breakfast and Monica Attard who has done some incredible reporting for the ABC and now works at UTS uh, as the director of the Centre for Media Transition. Monica, how do you feel the purpose of public radio has changed since you first uh, blissfully dived into it? Well, I think it's broadened in a sense. I mean, you know, it, it, radio has a funny history. It, it started out as uh, as entertainment, as a form of entertainment also, you know, radio plays, et cetera, in the, in the very, very early days. And then it took on an information perspective, became quite influential um, in, you know, delivering news and information. Um, at the In Australia, it, it's taken a similar arc as it has internationally. And it's it's payday, I suppose, you, you really would have to say, would, would have been in the 80s and 90s. I don't know whether the others would disagree with me on that one, but that's my, that's my impression, at least. Uh, and I, I think now that, that with changing technologies, changing listening habits, the purpose is, is changing a lot. I, my, my sense is that, the, that people listen to radio very, very differently these days than they did just 20, you know, 10, 20 years ago. That it, it's a kind of, it's almost incidental listening in the car, um, that the purposeful listening comes via, you know, uh, on-demand audio, so podcasting, broadly speaking. Um, and, 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 of course, as we know, podcasting has so many different um, aspects to it. I mean, there can, you know, can be information, it could be entertainment, and, and, and there is some just companionship kind of podcasting that, that occurs and is produced. So I think the purpose is changing, and I think that the way we listen is changing. Um, and 
which is not to say that I don't think that there's a role for linear radio, because I actually do think there's a role for linear radio. And when when something big is happening in the world, you know, if you can't get to a television, which is, let's face it, still most people's first port of call when there's a big breaking story, you do go to the radio. You do want to hear uh, people that you know, trust, like telling you what's happening in the world. It's, it, so it does have a very, very important function. Um, but I think that incidental listening is changing. It's some really interesting text coming in on the contrast between how we listen to on-demand audio and, and linear audio. Rob in Urandri says, the problem with podcasts is you tend to listen to things that reinforce your existing beliefs. Listening to RN Live is absolutely fantastic because you're presented with such a rich kaleidoscope of all sorts of fascinating viewpoints, opinions and news. Another says RN is social glue. We are social beings. Podcasts are for indulging ourselves in private moments. Public radio is what normalises and holds a community together. Eric Newsom, what's your response to ideas like that? I mean, podcasts are your lifeblood. Yeah, well, podcasts are my lifeblood. I, I tend to not get too wrapped up in some of these questions about uh, platform. Um, I really think the better way to look at this is by audience. And audiences break up into a bunch of different segments, and they use different platforms differently, but they do it to kind of achieve the same thing. You know, people want connection, they want context, they want to understand things in a way that is um, unique in the media sphere. Um, in the United States, when uh, public broadcasting was really kind of being formulated in the mid-1960s, uh, e the author E.B. White was asked if he had any ideas to contribute to the formulation of public broadcasting. And the first thing he wrote was, it should it should hold itself up to the idea of excellence, not acceptability. And if you take that and say, well, this is actually a very profound thing. You can apply that to television. You can apply it to radio. You can apply it to podcasting. You can apply it to a streaming service. Like, what does that mean? And so I think public radio, it's really about how do we apply that idea to all these different mediums? And the answer should always change. Well, it's interesting you say that, Eric, because we often kind of think as podcasts as active listening and, as Monica was saying, linear radio now is more passive listening. You kind of switch it on in the car and see what's happening as opposed to making appointment radio. Does that change the approach to, uh, I guess, quality or, or any anything about the approach to, to the content that public radio should be making? So I think the, the benefit of broadcast audio is always its immediacy we can have a conversation with your your audience can participate. It becomes very much of a full circle experience because it's all happening in real time. And podcasting, that's very difficult to achieve, if not impossible. And so there are some types of conversations that will still really work well as broadcast. And there are other conversations that are much better suited for a podcast for a number of different reasons. And so I, I really just don't think it's it's really, you know, I, and, I, and I also think that there has been change in the way that people consume broadcast radio. It's not been as much of a change as uh, on the consumer side, as a listener side, as many people in the industry seem to think it is. And it has much more to do with the, which is a much larger issue to discuss if you wish, about the organizations, the public radio organizations internationally and their ability to change and adapt to the times. Fran Kelly, you started the Party Room podcast while you were hosting RN Brecky as a live show, so both programs that wrestle with the political news of the day. How did you approach each one? Did you see them as fulfilling different needs for listeners? 
Um, yes, I did because people would choose to tune into a political podcast because they wanted to know more about politics. People would tune to choose in uh, to tune into a live radio program because they want to know what's happening in their world. And for someone to um, curate, I suppose, the big stories for them for the day, so they can be informed as they go about their work. So I think RN. I mean, for some, as as um, Monica said, for some it is more passive listening. It is just company, and I know people and people in my family who just have RN on all day and, you know, they feel fondly towards all the people who are broadcasting all through the day and have done that. That's been their listening habit for years. But, um, you know, podcasting is different. But in my mind, podcast it's all audio, right? Podcast has saved the radio in a sense. The, the prediction of the demise of linear radio has been coming at us for a long time and turns out that what happens is, that's what happened is people love audio and they want, to be listening and I think people are, uh, uh, I think as Eric was suggesting, moving a little more freely between the two. I mean, young people, young generations haven't grown up with appointment TV and they won't grow up with appointment radio except they all grew up with their folks in the car going to school. When I left RN Breakfast, I got a number of emails and in fact young people coming up to me saying, oh, I grew up with you, I've been listening to you because my mum always listened to you on the way to school and, you know, and then I started listening to you later. So these are habits that we form. But what I find absolutely inspiring and hopeful is that, yes, to the to the listener who wrote in and said, you know, podcasts tend to reinforce our own, our own thoughts and opinions, but not necessarily so. I think that it is a great educator in the same way RN's brief, I heard Luke on RN Breakfast today talk about the original brief for RN um, was to, you know, intersperse funny audio with smart audio and educative audio to try and educate the nation almost by default. I mean, people, young, young people are consuming a lot of such fantastic audio about history, about economics, about anything that interests them, that I feel like, you know, we, we, we're getting more educated along the way and that's kind of an offset to some of the, 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 the murkier, nastier habits we might be getting through social media generally. So I, I think it's a positive thing. I think it's given audio, if we think of it all as audio, it's given it a big shot in the arm and that it's a really positive and hopeful thing for the future. We're just not quite worked out how to turn off linear radio. I think radio executives around the world are thinking that's what they'd like to do at some point and treat everything as, as content. But there is a need for immediacy. People want to know what's going on when there's something going on that they want to know about. Yeah, Cody's texted in, RN Live informs me as to any repeat or a podcast that I should rehear to clarify in, the, in my memory. So there's that dual, dual purpose and dual habit going on there. We'll talk in a moment uh, about the particularities of listener needs in regional areas, outside cities with you, Monica. But I just want to ask, can you give our listeners a sense of just how much the general public's listening habits have changed in the last decade or so around those technological changes that we We've been hearing about from Fran and Eric. Well, I, mean, I think Fran has kind of encapsulated it perfectly. There, I think I think the listening listeners' habits have have changed to the extent that people know that if they've missed something on, you know, linear radio, that that the chances of them being able to catch up either on a on a on a, on a um, bespoke podcast of a particular program, or or parts of that program being excerpted, like um, has happened. <coughs> excuse me from. Um, 
on Radio National's uh, breakfast program and on its drive program. You know, where you go to the website or, or you go to the ABC Listen app and you can find, you know, interviews that you can that you, you may have missed and you want to hear or you may want to hear again. So, I mean, if, if listeners' habits have, have changed because they know now that they can always access something after it's gone live to air. Uh, and, you know, that, that also has boosted the, um, the efficacy of podcasting. And as Fran said, I mean, podcasting really has saved radio in so many ways because it has given people the opportunity to be able to tailor their listening habits. I don't think it's necessarily keeping people in their own bubble either. I think it has the capacity to... I know that when I'm scrolling through my, my podcast, my preferred podcast app, as we like to say these days, um, that, that I'll, I'll come across programs that I didn't know existed from parts of the world that, you know, I hadn't really thought about. And I think, well, that, that might be interesting and I'll have a listen in. So I actually think it has a capacity to expand the way we we see the world, understand the world. And that's a really, that's a very, very big plus. Um, but in terms of the way people listen, I think everybody, it's, 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 there's, I don't even know that there's any particular academic research that looks specifically at the way listening habits have changed because it is such a, a, a personalised thing and it changes so regularly. You know, so you, you, you'll notice as well sometimes when the radio ratings come, come, come out, the programs that have been, you know, languishing in the low single numbers suddenly, you know, burst up into double figures. I mean, though, people's listening habits change all the time depending on their personal circumstances. I certainly wouldn't write linear radio off. I don't write linear radio off. I think Fran, again, is right when she says that time will come when media managers will say, you know, there is a cheaper way to do audio content, as they like to put it, um, and uh, it, and they will go down that route of trying to get rid of um, the costs that come with producing, you know, live radio. But, um, but overall, they'll also be dictated by listener habits. I mean, if you try to get rid of anything, try to get rid of Radio National Breakfast and you'd see how you know, audiences react. It would be an enormous reaction. So it's a very, it's a very, very difficult question to answer. Yes, indeed it is. We're speaking with Monica Attard, who is uh, working at UTS now as the director for the Centre for Media Transition. Fran Kelly, who's the co-host of The Party Room and is going to rejoin RN in 2024 as the host of Saturday Extra. And Eric Newsom, who's a radio and podcast strategist and the author of a book called Make Noise. And you can find his work at his website, ericnewsom.com. Uh, lovely to hear your text here as we discuss a lot of issues that affect the way we live our lives, really, the way we uh, consume our information and therefore form our opinions and direct our actions in in our political and social life. One says, I'd like to second the uh, the gentleman's view that came via text. I really think that if you just listen to podcasts, you're more likely to end up listening to segments which reinforce your own viewpoint. Whereas passive listening, which I'm not sure is the best term, sometimes I'm chatting to my radio, they say, envelops all kinds of different topics and viewpoints, which I otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to. Thanks and keep up the good linear work. I think it's worth noting too that podcasts can 
surprise you a lot as well. You can go to one thinking this is what I'm getting and suddenly have your mind uh, accidentally broadened. Lots of people texting in with lovely thoughts saying, don't change a thing, you're perfect the way you are. Uh, thank you, you're my contact to the world, RN. Interesting, informative, real and honest. So important, says Steve. As I don't read much, it absorbs me. And uh, thank you for listening, Steve, and for your lovely text. Eric, what's your sense about whether podcasting is still in a growth phase or maybe if it's starting to taper off and people are changing their habits again? Well, you know, I think that there's been quite a bit of press devoted to podcasting struggle this year. Um, And I think that that's fair in the sense that there was a lot, tremendous amount of investment in podcasting. Uh, A lot of commercial companies investing a lot of money to see if they could establish a beachhead in, in podcasting. Uh, some who are new to the space or some who are just you know, media companies or, or companies and organizations that lived in other media and wanted to expand into podcasting. And a lot of that kind of kind of came to roost uh, this year of those investments became difficult to sustain as the commercial advertising industry struggled. Um, so it's been quite a year, lots of layoffs, lots of cutbacks. But the interesting thing is, is that the listening both the number of listeners coming to podcasting and the amount of listening they're doing continues to grow, sometimes double digits, quarter after quarter, um, uh, for has been for years and is still continuing, even in this kind of financially recession-like period for podcasting. Consumer interest and adaptation of podcasting continues to grow, which is, you know, I think it's 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 interesting kind of when you look at it compared to broadcast. Because you know, we've been painting with very broad brushes in this conversation um, uh, uh, about technical disruption and listener changes. This is there's no listener story, uh, one listener story. There are many different stories, many different types of audiences that use public radio. And what's interesting in the United States, and this blows people's minds when I tell them this, is if you look at the demographic cohorts for public radio listeners in the United States which the thinking is, is that it's on the decline, that the audience is old, that the audience is white, that the audience is declining, that the largest generational cohort for public radio in the United States is actually millennials and Generation Z. It's more than, than, than the, the baby boomers, which is really the mainstay of public broadcasting here in the United States for many decades. But the reason it doesn't feel like that's true is that baby boomers listen more than twice as much every week as millennials and Generation Z do, even though there are more younger people listening to linear broadcast today, which people don't believe that's true, and it is. Um, they don't listen. They listen about less, a little less than two hours a week compared to baby boomers who listen much more. And if you ask these younger listeners why they don't listen more, the answer they give first is it sounds like they're speaking to somebody else. It sounds like yeah. they're speaking to my parents. Mm, yeah. And I think that is as much of an issue in public broadcasting today as digital disruption is, which I think is actually a smaller issue than the than the, than the, the organizations really targeting themselves at their next generation of listeners. Mm, yeah, and yeah, I want to talk in... Just, your, can I, yeah, can yeah. I just pick up on that? Because it's I've been thinking about this too as we've been discussing. Um, and Eric, I'm very heartened to hear those statistics, I've got to say. But um, I think that's right. I mean, I do, I do the party room and I, and, I've, and I did RM Breakfast all at the same time. But when you're in the podcast world or when, when I'm in that podcast world, I'm conscious of the fact that people have actively chosen to seek out this group of these two women, 
Patricia and I, who are hosting this podcast week in, week out, um, and they and they have a sense of us and they have a sense of their relationship to us. And I know this because when I meet them in person at live events or, you know, th- th- they they are very friendly and they are friendly with each other. So you know that you're, you get it, you build a sense of this world, I suppose, that you are talking to of people who have actively chosen to come here to hear what you guys are talking about. And so we are talking in a different way than on broadcast radio where you have a much broader audience. Um, people are choosing to come for many different reasons, not necessarily to hear the presenter but to hear the content or because of habit or, you know, many, many reasons. And so I think the voice is different but I also think the broadcast voice is changing too. Maybe not fast enough is what Eric's saying and it's probably right. But I think there is a reason for a different voice but maybe we need to think more about that, the voice on linear versus the style on podcasts. I don't know, Eric or Monica, what you think of that. I'm, I'm fascinated by this discussion because I think one of my favourite things about public radio is its capacity to surprise me with new information and new perspectives and that that uh, idea of who's listening and how old they are is, is new to me, really interesting. We're speaking with Fran Kelly, Monica Attard and Eric Newsom about the future of public radio because we've been around for 100 years in this country now, much longer in other places, but it's it's been you know, a wild ride and uh, we've we've played different roles in different parts of the country and at different points over time. So I'm very interested to hear from you the role that we play in your life. Here's a, just a taste. I'm in my 80s. RN has been very important to keeping me interested and alive in the world for many years. I used information from RN when I was a high school teacher. Today I enjoy telling young people who don't listen regularly about programs relevant to them or their studies and they're interested, I think, and find them useful. Recently, I heard a young woman work working as a consultant, saying that she used This Working Life podcast as a very useful resource when writing briefs. Thank you for that perspective. Monica Adda, let's talk just quickly about our role in regional areas, because you've been doing research into regional news media in Australia. Mm-hmm. What have you heard about how public radio and other media fill the needs that exist there? Well, I can tell you that uh, regional, uh, regional audiences uh, value the ABC incredibly highly. It is a very, very, very important thing to them. Um, It is unlike, I think, uh, city or or urban audiences. Regional audiences can have the ABC on their radio from morning until night. Uh, That hasn't changed. It has always been that way and we see very, very little evidence that it's changing. Um, I think that we can safely say that it's not just a a matter of emergency broadcasting that the ABC does that is important for regional audiences. It is um, the reflection of what is happening external to their immediate region, but also what's happening within their region. And I think that's the... The ABC has recently boosted its regional news reporting coverage with some 55, I think, additional reporters around the the country. and I think that's been that's been an important development. Let's hope that they can maintain that from a budget perspective. But it's for regional people who live in regional communities, it is important for them to, particularly in a, in a in a period of time where their local newspapers, for example, either have been reduced to 
to something that's barely recognisable as a newspaper or alternatively has disappeared altogether or has been, you know, gobbled up by a major corporate and appears as a tagline at the bottom of an of a, a urban masthead, it is very, very important for regional communities to have some independent source of information about their own community and about the wider world. So, uh, you know, we, we we don't see that changing at all. We see that as being a very, very um, strong desire of those communities and an important one because otherwise if they don't have that uh, independent voice which is talking to them about the major issues, in, for example, in, in their local regions, when it comes to policy making, it's almost as though they don't have a voice. They don't have a, a seat at the table because those the issues leading up to major policy announcements, formulation, etc., changes, tends to happen or is given its cue at least in media coverage. Uh, and that if that takes place uh, on the front pages of the big metro newspapers or on, you know, the ABC nationally, um, but doesn't incorporate local voices, then there's an element that's missing. And they end up being voiceless. We've examined two major policy areas, one which I will talk to you about, which is the Murray-Darling uh uh, water basin plan and the local communities impacted by that, their local newspapers were covering the issue but from a very, very local perspective, none of that narrative travelled to any metro publications. None of it. Which tells you something about the way the debate, the torch was part of this debate over the last 10 years. So it is a very, very important issue. Yeah, I remember when the fish kills photos came out and tracing how that story emerged, it began to seem there was quite a lot of luck in that person Person being there on the ground at that time and being able to access it and a lot of legwork. That person put in a lot of work to try and bring that story to a wider audience, but it wasn't a, a given thing, was it? No, and if you're talking about the last fish kill, so that was the Guardian that broke that story and they happened to have a freelancer in the area at the time. So, you know, they were there looking at issues and, and the, the fish kill, ha- the, 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 you know, that disaster happened and they, were, they happened to be there to be able to document it. But, you know, it does take a lot of um, knowledge. It takes a lot of um, uh, understanding of local issues to be able to report local issues properly, particularly when there are policy implications down the track. And if those narratives are not travelling from those regional communities into um, to metro audiences via metro media, then they lose their seat at the table. And that is, you know, that is of major concern, I think. So when we think about audience diversity, because that is changing hugely and has changed hugely over the last couple of decades in Australia, not just ethnic diversity, but as we're hearing different uh, age groups listening differently and people listening differently across the country as more people have access to uh, uh, internet in more places. Monica, how much much more work does public radio need to do to make sure we're representing and serving the the breadth of the Australian audience now? Oh my goodness, that's such a big question and it's such a complex question. Can somebody else answer it? No. <laughs> um, it's, it's, a, it's a horrendously complex question. You know, our newsrooms have traditionally been, you know, very, very white and Anglo and 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 and, and male, um, and that is changing, and that's a fantastic thing. Um, I mean, I'm sure even Fran would remember the time when I was probably the most exotic thing in the ABC, the current affairs um, area. Um, but um, 
you know, diversity has a major upside. It's probably 99% upside, but there's a little bit of downside too. And that we're seeing that at the moment with reporters who feel confronted by the reporting um, on the Israel-Gaza conflict. Um, we saw is that the- a downside or is that just a, a, a well, fact a down- of modern newsrooms? It's a, it's a downside in the sense that they feel uncomfortable and that they feel, you know, as, as though they don't have a voice in changing the way news is produced. Um, Isn't that more about how editorial managers approach? Because this is something that surely has affected journalists in the past in different ways, around climate change, for example, around environmental issues, around queer issues. You know, it's, it's not a, a new thing. It's just a new example. It is a new. I agree with you. It is a new example. It's probably a more difficult one and a more a more a more complex example, if you like, because the capacity for, you know, deep hurt and harm is so great. Any media organisation that gets this story wrong in the tone of its reporting has the capacity to actually hurt members of the community, not just the journalism community, but the the broader community. So it's a very, very difficult story to report. It's always been, it's always had enormous sensitivity attached to it. Um, And, you know, this time around that sensitivity is being aired because you you have a younger cohort of journalists working in newsrooms who feel more strongly about it. I I get all that, although I, I don't see exactly what they're upset about because I think the reporting, apart from the first week, has actually been of a, of a very high order. Particularly, I have to say, at the ABC. Yes, I know I'm a little bit biased, but I do think the ABC's coverage has been exceptionally good. Um, so, you know, I, I, it's, look, it's a very, very difficult. Diversity is a very, very complex thing. We, what we do know is that the face of newsrooms is changing, and that's a fantastic thing. And long may it, you know, remain in that, in, moving in that direction. Mm. Uh, it's a very, very important thing to have people with different life experiences reporting on the same experiences that we're all having. It is really, 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 really important. Mm. Um, I know. I just am aware of. I've got time for probably one more question yes. each, and I really want to make them count. Fran Kelly, how important is the idea of a public square when it comes to public radio, giving a space for the audience to have a voice, not just to kind of have information sent to them? Well, it's very important and that's why we we have employed the text line and we make it easier for people to, you know, share their views. It's why local radio still does talk back and why the, you know, um, I had my first experience actually of hosting radio with talk back and it was a terrific engaging experience and gave me a whole new perspective on the value of that tool. Yeah, it's really fun, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. It's really fun and it's really critical. And, you know, we keep hearing at the moment, I want to sort of just finish off on this point, referring back to something that Eric said again about how the voice of broadcast versus podcast. I mean, we hear a lot now that, um, you know, the audience has news fatigue um, and ways we interpret that. It goes, I think, I don't, do people have news fatigue? I think people still want to know the news. They want to know what's happening. They want to get involved and hear about the big issues. It's the way we present it to them. It's the way they can hear it and the way we tell the news and the way we present the news that is changing. I think podcasts has really pushed us to change that. Um, I think it's also having an impact on some of the editorial debates that Monica was talking about there because in podcasting there's perhaps a lot more advocacy than certainly in public broadcasting where, you know, we need to be objective. We, 
but even that is changing. The amount of commentary within the broadcast is changing. But I do think we need to think long and deep about how we tell the news, how we present the news, rather than just thinking, oh, people don't want to hear bad news, so we'll just tell light news. I think that's the wrong lever to pull, and I think we're we're still in the middle of, of, of that of that debate and that revolution, really. Mm. Monica Attard, I know you've got some thoughts on how to tackle news avoidance. Could you summarise them for us? Oh, I mean, news avoidance is stay, keep away from advocacy. I think what turns people right off is when they feel that they're being lectured to or told how to think. I mean, the role of journalism is not to tell people, um, you know, what to think. Uh, it, it is, it, it's the role of journalism to present information and um, and, and keep people informed. Um you know, you, you, as Fran said, there is an element that is changing a little bit. So there is a little bit of a nudging that's happening within the within the the methodology of the performance of public interest journalism. But still, you, you know, the important thing is is that people don't. I think people don't want to feel as though they're being told what to think and when to think it and how to think it, um, and and that we're intelligent enough to be able to make up our own minds. We just want information. Mm. Um, so I think advocacy is the big problem for me. Eric Newsom, I was so fascinated to read that NPR gets 40% of its funding from directly from listeners. So they've obviously done this fantastic job building and sustaining an audience. What can public radio learn from that model in terms of uh, how you serve an audience? I think they, they talk about ideas of authenticity and diversity. What's your view? Well, uh, just to clarify, 40% of the funding comes to NPR member stations, which unlike other public broadcasters, uh, it's a decentralized system um, where uh, National Public Radio is actually a service that provides content to independently programmed radio stations across the United States, over a thousand of them. So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. People give money in the United States to support public radio they only give it when they listen and it creates value for them. And it's, they miss it if it went away and it's personally important and relevant to them. So that donation money is a reflection basically from the audience, not just that they listen, but they value it. And they can give money to something they otherwise could get for free. And it's a real good litmus test for the health of the industry too. When the Even in bad economic times, those member donations still continue. Uh, and don't see, in fact, they go up usually during uh, recessionary times because people understand the value of their contributions to make it possible. And using that as a real metric of like, how are we really providing a public service? There's a number of ways to gauge that. One of them is those public service or those public support dollars coming back and saying as a as a validation of, yes, you have served me well, here's my contribution. I wish that we could talk about this for many hours and clearly our listeners agree because there's just screeds of text messages. I'll leave you with this one. I don't want my news via TV, says Elle in Canberra. I have no time to sit and watch. I take my radio everywhere, garden, kitchen, bathroom, shower and, yes, the loo. RN's the first voice I listen to in the morning and the last voice I listen to at night. My family know not to interrupt. My mum said my first formed sentences were ring the bells, lock the doors. <laughs> my parents <laughs> listen to Parliament. <laughs> Thank you. Our work is done. Fran Kelly, Monica Attard, Eric Newsom, so lovely to chat with you all today. Thanks so much for your time. 
Thank you. Thanks, Thank Lori. You. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, everybody. Happy 100th. Fran <laughs> Kelly is the co-host of The Party Room. She'll be back next year too as the host of Saturday Extra on RN. Monica Attard is co-director of the Centre for Media Transition at UTS. And Eric Newsom is a radio and podcast strategist. And you can find his work at ericnewsom.com. And for more on the 100 years of public radio, check out the History Listen. Uh, they're taking a deep dive into the centenary of broadcasting. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.